This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Well, well, well. Uh, that hearing, that January 6th select committee hearing, the surprise one that was called for this past Tuesday with Cassidy Hutchinson. Now, probably close to a household name, she had a few bombshells related to the Trump administration the day January 6th. As Mr. Giuliani and I were walking to his vehicles that evening, he looked at me and said something to the effect of, Cass, are you excited for the 6th? It's going to be a great day. I remember looking at him and saying, Rudy, could you explain what's, what's happening on the 6th? Uh, he, he had responded something to the effect of, we're going to the Capitol, it's going to be great, the president's going to be there, he's going to look powerful, he's, he's going to be with the members, he's going to be with the senators. Talk to the chief about it, talk to the chief about it, he knows about it. After Mr. Giuliani had left the campus that evening, I went back up to our office and I found Mr. Meadows in his office on the couch. He was scrolling through his phone. I remember leaning against the doorway and saying, I said an interesting conversation with Rudy, Mark. Sounds like we're going to go to the Capitol. He didn't look up from his phone and said something to the effect of, yeah, there's a lot going on, Cass, but I don't know, things might get real, real bad on January 6th. Once the president had gotten into the vehicle with Bobby, he thought that they were going up to the Capitol, and when Bobby had relayed to him, we're not, we don't have the assets to do it, it's not secure, we're going back to the West Wing. The president had very strong, a very angry response to that. Tony described him as being irate. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Angle. And Mr. when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. Early on in the White House, there was talk of people armed in the city at the ellipse where the president was to speak. And then with plans to go to the Capitol, people were armed. And they knew about it in the White House. I mean, not just, you know, small arms. Some people were carrying AR-15s. Some people were carrying spears. That alone, I can't understand. Where do you buy a spear? There were people in trees with AR-15s. This according to the testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson. So there was a lot to digest in her testimony. 
Now there are some people who say, well, yeah, she made it up. Ah, but there are a lot of people who believe her testimony. So today I wanted to talk about the role of the Secret Service. We're going to talk to a former Secret Service agent. Not just any Secret Service agent. Larry Johnson is his name. And he spent 24 years as a U.S. Secret Service special agent, including turns supervising the Presidential Protection Division and the Criminal Investigation Division of the Secret Service. So he has a lot of experience. And I, I have so many questions to ask him you know, about these Secret Service agents who were protecting former President Trump on January 6th. Larry Johnson, thanks for being with us. Jeff, thank you for having me. All right, so let's start with more of an introduction of you. You rose to the top as far as an agent can go in the Secret Service. Tell us about your career. Sure, sure. My career started in 1982 and um, my first 10 years in the Secret Service. I was a criminal investigator. The the criminal side of the house with the Secret Service involved, financial crime, counterfeit of U.S. currency, stolen bonds, treasury checks. In those days, they weren't electronic. And then some of the early days of cybercrime. Initially, cybercrime came from the world of financial crime, online crime, electronic crime, etc. Then, uh, in the early 90s, I was assigned to the White House. My first assignment in Washington, D.C. was involving President Bush 41, where I kind of cut my teeth, learned the ropes. Um, and it continued on with President Clinton, where I was uh, still on the detail for four more years, Clinton's first uh, term, a little beyond that. So I did actually six years of a three and a half, four year assignment. I guess they, they, uh, they liked me and it was my calling. Uh, then I went back to the field and worked criminal cases. And then in, in the year 2000, before the election, I came back to the White House as the assistant special agent in charge. And Clinton was completing his his second term and then morphed that into uh, President Bush's first two years. So the transition team, the uh, exchange of powers, working with uh, the new staff and and I'm sure we can get into it. But there's there, there's a big learning curve with the Secret Service and security with uh, the new staff members that come in. Some of them, in, in the case of President Bush, were, were holdovers from his father's administration. After a couple of years there, Jeff, I, uh, I became uh, ultimately the special agent in charge of the criminal division um, with primary responsibility on cybercrime and counterfeit currency. And at the time, critical infrastructure protection planning and uh, as it relates to also protective responsibilities. One assignment that I didn't mention, I was also uh, in charge of protective operations where I, off, where I had oversight for not only 
the presidential detail, but the vice presidential detail, foreign heads of state that came into the United States, as well as national special security events. During my time there, we had the Winter Olympics in Utah, which was one of the larger events uh, during the time before I retired in 2006. All right. That is a pretty thorough introduction, and I... I really appreciate it. And I try to do that with most, if not all of my guests, because I want our listeners to know that when we bring somebody on this program, it's usually someone who has experience, firsthand knowledge of a certain area that we are looking into. And right now we're talking about this January 6th committee, its investigation, this past week of Cassidy Hutchinson and her testimony, which was uh, in a lot of ways, pretty jaw dropping stuff, especially as it relates to the secret service and what she claims happened with president Trump and some of the secret service agents in his protective detail. So let me ask you, Larry, you know, you don't have any direct knowledge of what happened on January 6th, but you do know what it's like to be in a presidential uh, protection division. You know what that's like. And so when you hear the kind of scrutiny that uh, agents are under as it relates to protecting former President Trump and what he allegedly did, what runs through your mind? Uh, That's a great question. I think that, you know, first of all, the Secret Service, you know, they, they have a mission, they have a mandate and um, their mission, very mission driven agency. I don't think there's another agency in government that it, it works as hard as, as the Secret Service. And they also protect the office of the president, which I think is a key point to bring up that, it, like I mentioned, I, I transitioned from Bush 41 to Clinton, from Republican to Democrat. And then I did it again from Democrat to Republican with Bush 43. You have to keep in mind that the Secret Service is really an apolitical organization. You're so mission driven. It doesn't really matter who sits in that seat. So does that mean that if crimes are being committed in the White House, the Secret Service turns the other cheek, doesn't doesn't raise alarms? I mean, will you keep all the secrets to yourself? Again, we saw we saw this back when President Clinton was president and and with Monica Lewinsky. One of the things that the Secret Service fought tooth and nail was not having to testify in either an open hearing, closed hearing, court of public opinion, because if you do testify or you're compelled to testify, then part of the the mission of the Secret Service is that president or whoever sits in that seat has to trust, you know, his protectors. We're right next to him, not only 24-7, 365, at any time, we may not be in the room, but when he opens the door, we're outside the door. So there has to be a trust factor there 
But in the case of Monica, Monica Lewinsky, uh, we did testify. A very good friend of mine testified, Larry Cockle. And, and it turned out to be uh, okay. Uh, the President Clinton still trusted us. He knew that it wasn't us that we fought it tooth and nail. It wasn't us that were volunteering to tell stories that uh, keeps our job you know, not only safer, but the trust factor on the commission book of the Secret Service. It says worthy of trust and confidence. So to answer your question, uh, we don't we don't want to uh, get in the business of testifying. But if crimes have com been committed, we're a law enforcement agency. So we're also following the law. So it's there is a little bit of uh, of gray area there. Um, and so we'll see. I know that the Secret Service has said that they would testify. They have, but I, from my point of view, as a former Secret Service agent, I don't want them to testify. Make a statement that either none of it happened, that or did something, did whatever they want to say, but don't testify because then then Congress will call them up on any occasion to see if they can find out something that probably isn't something they need to know. Huh. Well, isn't it? I mean, whether you release a statement or testify uh, in public, you're still potentially admitting what Cassidy Hutchinson alleged that the president on January 6th was trying to go to the Capitol and he was irate in the vehicle. It was an SUV, not the beast, Yeah, but it was an SUV. Uh, and he said something along the lines, I'm the effing president. Take me to the Capitol now. And then allegedly tried to, to grab one of the agents in involved. Um, you know, so these are serious allegations. I mean, whether they acknowledge that this happened in a paper statement or on TV, I mean, isn't it the same? I mean, aren't you in some ways perhaps giving the next president pause about who's around him? Most definitely, Jeff. It's a it's a little bit of a slippery slope. Uh, but what what I will uh, you know, and, and, and let me give let me give some context from my own experience. I've been yelled at on a number of occasions by the leader of the free world. It's not a good position to be in. Can you tell us which one? Can you tell us which one? No. <laughs> well, I've, I've told you who I was working with. And so I think that probably gives a clue. And I said multiple times, so it could have been, you know, any of the presidents. So, um, but it's not a good position to be in. You know, one of the things, and, and I've been in the corporate world and I've been in security for, you know, 35 years plus, and, and security is a barrier. It is an inhibitor. It's not a, you know, a security, while it keeps you safe, it, it, it's, it's not, you know, it, it, it actually pisses people off when they can't do something because of a, a security concern. So, you know, when you talk about this current situation and the president being in a suburban, the, the suburban is outfitted the same as the beast. It, it, there is, it's soundproof, bulletproof, 
the, the doors are controlled. So uh, again, I'm going back to who really knows what happened. It's going to be the Secret Service. Uh, uh, they're the only ones that are there 24-7. And if you look at the senior staff, you, you have your inner circle, you know, your chief of staff, your deputy chief of staff, your, your national security advisor, chief counsel, press secretary, personal aide. You know, you're going to have, there's 13 senior advisors. There's 11 directors, 11 directors of like communications or public affairs or government affairs. There is a laundry list of senior White House officials. So one of the things the Secret Service, and, and you'll get my point once I get to it, is that they manifest everything. Everything is manifest, not only to the stage, but to the vehicles. It's not musical chairs where you can, everybody in the staff comes down the ellipse and thinks they're going to get a ride home in the motorcade. It doesn't matter. If you, even if you're the deputy chief of staff and there's only one seat for the chief of staff, you're going to have to walk to the White House. It's that detailed. And reason being is what we called the staff people that are not senior. We called them uh, strap hangers or the gaggle. We've got to have them out of our way because there's egress routes. There's you have to have security buffer zones. There's a lot involved in security. And those things are decided beforehand by the staff advance and the Secret Service lead advance for the ellipse. So my point is any conversations or anything that happened, it was not privy to a lot of people. Uh, I wasn't there, like you pointed out. I don't know who was privy to the strong words of the president, but it was, it's not something, Jeff, like, you, you know, you, you get in the limo and you go, take me to the Capitol. It's not a taxi service. I guess that's my point. It's structured there. It has a, it has occurred before where a president gets in the car and kind of wants to go off script. We call those off the record movements. And when I'm looking at this situation, I'm looking at the ellipse or the White House. The White House is a level five security government facility going to another level five government security at the Capitol, which at the time was deemed secure. Remember, Vice President Pence was at the Capitol. So the only is so when if somebody asked the agent in charge in this in this case, it was Bobby. Uh, I want to go to the Capitol. The Secret Service supervisor never says never. He will say, though, sir, we need 30 minutes to make sure that we can have a motorcade route prepared to go to the Capitol or we're going to have to flow with traffic, which would take us a while in Washington, D.C. traffic to get there. So all those things have to be considered. And the president, quite frankly, had been in office for four years. He knows the protocols. This isn't the first time I'm sure he's got upset that he wanted to do something now as opposed to waiting 30 minutes. So these things have occurred. He wasn't a new president. Uh, again, I wasn't there, but I know how they've been. These situations have been handled in the past. You uh, just to sort of recap here, Tony Arnato, Robert, Bobby Engel. Are the Secret Service agents 
at issue here, um, you know, this is sort of an exaggeration, but quickly becoming household names, the kind of <laughs> kind of thing that I'm sure Secret Service agents don't want to happen. Their pictures all over the place. But so you called him Bobby Angle, which suggests to me that you know a little something about him. I I, I don't know him, uh, I, I, so I haven't met him, but. I know I know some folks that are that are on the presidential details, so uh, we'll leave it at that. As far as Tony's concerned, I, I've never met him either, uh, even though someone told me recently, oh, yeah, you remember him. I just don't recall. You know, when I left, the, all these these guys that are in charge were junior agents. So uh, and, and by the way, Tony was also uh, acting as deputy chief of staff for uh if you don't already know that he he was kind of a crossover where he was fulfilling both roles and it it was something that was the secret service was was interested in doing to have a deputy inside so that the liaison between security and the staff would be easier now i don't know maybe they figured out that wasn't a good idea, but that was an experimental role with Tony. That is interesting. All right, so I want to do a little role playing here. Um, Larry, brace yourself, okay? Because I want to, I want to take you back. You know, 25, 30 years ago, when you were on one of these presidential details and. Let's say you had talk in the White House, and and really, there's nothing to compare January six to. But all right, let's just let's just role play here. You're in the White House. You're hearing before you go out to the ellipse that there are people in the crowd with AR-15s with spears. Oddly enough, some people in trees with AR-15s or guns, pistols. People are armed. And law enforcement is outnumbered. What do you get concerned? Do you tell the president, hey, we really can't do this. We shouldn't do this. Would you be so nervous that you would want to call off that appearance? Uh, great question. Um, and, and, and let me go back in uh, 25 years and recall that. Every day, every day is the Super Bowl for the Secret Service. Every day, the threats that the threats you would you would be uh, pretty much shocked at the threats. And if you look at President Obama, first African American president, look the threats or with the threats are are uh, underreported. Things with people with guns around the White House occurs every day. All the time, the any time the president, you know, goes goes out of the White House, we try to recreate the White House bubble. So if you're at the Lips or you're at the, the G8, uh, you're in an in, international environment or, or no matter where you're at, the Secret Service has protocols with magnetometers, X-ray machines, counter sniper, counter assault. We have you know, uh, surveillance teams in the crowd. If, if people are within a certain distance, 
we're going to know whether or not they have a gun or not. They can't get through a magnetometer with a gun. So maybe they look at the magnetometer and they go, okay, we can't go into the event. We're just going to hang outside the event. We make sure that the the distances and the, and the point of views and the site views, all this is taken into account. We, we look at the air, we look under the ground, we look at the environment, we look at sensors for gas, you name it. You think of any spy novel you've ever read and think of anything and it's already been thought about. So it's all about reducing risk, Jeff. We don't, we don't want to take any risk at all. And matter of fact, if if we could have a president that would just sit in the Oval Office all day, I think we would be much happier <laughs> than one that would, you know, was out and about. I mean, President Clinton was a perfect example. He logged more time on Air Force One than anyone. He did more impromptu uh, stops where we just stopped on the side of the road of a motorcade because uh, he wanted to grab a uh, an ice cream cone or a cup of coffee and shake a few people's hands. So none of this, and, and by the way, I was at the White House during 9-11. Yeah, the president was not in the White House, but we evacuated the White House and we were a target that day for a plane to fly into the White House. So for me, it's another, you know, it would have been another day on the job. It really would have. And you kind of go, really? And you kind of go, yeah, to different degrees. Some days were less turbulent, obviously, but some days were just as, and in the case of 9-11, even more so. Do you believe Cassidy Hutchinson's account of what happened in that Suburban what do you think? I mean, she comes across or she came across in her testimony as very credible. Really, no one has disputed anything else that she's said about what she saw. Do you believe her? Oh, you're putting me on the spot, Jeff. I, I, I don't want to get in the case of whether I believe her or not. But so I look at I would look at probabilities like I mentioned. There are a number of senior officials at the White House that, uh, so if I put all the officials together from, I mean, the high ranking officials, you're talking 40 or 50 people that if they were the ones testifying, I would have a little more, uh, I think it'd be a little more credible. Why, why, why? Because they would they would be on the manifest to either be in the limo, they would be on the, the president's schedule to come into the Oval Office, they would be in a smaller environment where they could be privy to some maybe sensitive conversations. In her role as an administration person for the chief of staff, she's not operational. Matter of fact, she would probably be at maybe one or 2% of any of the president's events. There's just not a, enough room to accommodate staff. The Secret Service would not, you know, it would be special. Now, not to say that she had not been around the president during her time in that position, but I would say it would be maybe 2% of his time. It's really 
because uh, I've read where people at the White House said, yeah, she had a lot of access. But I know, I know that, uh, so if you're at the White House and the president's in the Oval Office, there's no way that person in that position would even know what's going on in the White House. They look at his schedule and they say, oh, he's meeting with the president of Canada today. He's having lunch at this time. But those doors are closed and he only, and they're, they're posted with Secret Service personnel. And the only way you can go through is through the Secret Service and his appointment secretary. So even in the limo, she's never, there's never been anyone in that position that has been manifested in the vehicle. There's only, there's only room for, you know, three or four people on a typical, on typical occasion, and it's going to be manifested. So back to your question, um, do I think it was firsthand knowledge? I don't. Could someone have told her that, or could it have, if it occurred when he came off the staff, uh, excuse me, off the stage, and he started his conversations before he got into the car, there is rope, there are roped off areas where the where VIPs and staff in her position can view the president getting into the vehicles. So my my long-winded uh answer to your question is really uh, a short answer. It's um she had to to hear it from someone else. Like I said, the limo, even the Suburbans are soundproof. They're bulletproof. You can't, if you're not in it, you don't know what's said. The Secret Service are really the only guys or girls that were were there. Uh, you can almost count, like I said, they're there 24 seven, 365. They're never out of shouting range from the president. So. If the if the Secret Service has come out and said that that that, that did not occur, then I, I'm siding with my former agency. They have no reason to say otherwise. Well, but could the reason be that they're embarrassed that it happened in the first place? People, you know, there's some people out there wondering, well, maybe the, the Secret Service just doesn't want to admit it because it's embarrassing that one of their guys was overtaken by the president. Yeah, yeah. What do you think? Um, you know, I, I will give the I will give the Secret Service the, uh, their due uh, in a in a in the limo. First of all, I know how the this was in the suburban. So for him to, I think it's kind of ridiculous to think that he would grab the wheel from something that I've heard. There's, what is he? He can't drive a vehicle from the back seat. And if he get, if he's gotten upset, like I've said, I've been yelled. I've been, I've, the president of the United States has gotten upset at me, but you know, the president is also, he knows that he has to get this, the Secret Service's cooperation to do something off the record. And uh, I'm not saying that he didn't yell if he did, if he wasn't upset. It's highly probable that that occurred. Now, the details of what he said and what he did, though, I, I would uh, I would question that. Now, it could be I'm still thinking it's hearsay. It's 
some from some third party, which, you know, I, I, I have no idea how that information would have left the vehicle, but, you know, it is possible. Larry Johnson, former Secret Service agent. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Jeff. Welcome back to America Change Forever. I'm your host, Jeff Begays. Let's continue the program. And we're going to switch topics to something that's hasn't been in the headlines as much lately because so many other things going on. You have the Supreme Court decision uh, striking down Roe v. Wade. Also, you have the situation in Ukraine. And you have the January 6th Select Committee hearing. So a lot overshadowing an issue that affects Americans day to day, sometimes hour to hour in this country. That is the rise in crime. And if you've been listening to this program and following my career, you know that uh, part of what I do here at CBS News is I cover the Department of Justice, I cover police and law enforcement issues, and I've been covering the rise in crime and what is fueling it. And as a news division here, we have made it a priority to go around the country, ask the tough questions. I know it sounds cliche, but that's that's what we're doing trying to figure out, well, what is fueling this rise in crime after so many years of of crime declining in cities across America. Well, we think we found at least one of the contributing factors. And that is homicides aren't being solved. There are unsolved cases that are contributing to the rise in crime. Two of my colleagues here at CBS News looked into this issue. CBS News Chief Investigative Correspondent Jim Axelrod, along with Andy Bast, his producer. They have done excellent reporting. They went to Baltimore, they went to Philadelphia, and they went to Jackson, Mississippi, where they met with family members of victims. Jackson, Mississippi has nearly 150 homicide cases from the last five years that are still under investigation. Another dispute between two people leads to a deadly shooting in Jackson. The weekend capped off by the deaths of three people Sunday in just a 12-hour period. No homicide detectives in America face a more daunting challenge than the ones here in Jackson, Mississippi. Last year, they had to work more than 150 cases. The year before, 130. Per capita, that's a higher homicide rate than Atlanta, Detroit, or even Chicago. And it's not even close. During the pandemic, murder rates in the United States spiked by nearly 30%, the largest yearly increase ever recorded by the FBI. But even more alarming is the drop in clearance rates or arrests made in homicide cases. In just about half the murders nationwide, no one is charged. That's a 50-year low that disproportionately impacts communities of color. In Jackson, Mississippi, a predominantly black city, the number of homicide-related arrests are slightly higher than the national average, but still dropped more than 13% over the last five years. What was your son's name? Zachary Ryan Robinson. And when was he killed? 
He was murdered on April 29th of 2014. My son, his name is Kellen Thompson Jr. He was uh, murdered April the 1st, 2021. Um, he actually was at the gas station in Jackson putting air in his tire. He wasn't even gone 50, home 15 minutes. And somebody killed my child. Ryan, he was murdered November 26, 2020 on Thanksgiving. Went to the friend's house and I didn't see him again. Still struggling, aren't you? And nobody informed me that he was deceased. They never came and told me. How has your experience been with the detectives trying to solve who did this crime? Horrible. Yes, pretty much. Ours was horrible. I had a missing person report. I hit up missing car. And I get a call saying, your car's on the side of the road, go pick up your car off the side of the road. I go and no Ryan, I beg them to come back. Please come back to this crime scene because it's gotta be a crime scene because Ryan is not here. They told me to wait after the holidays. You called the police and said, come help me. I have a missing person report. And they said what to you? Wait till after the holidays, ma'am. I actually had to call around to find a coroner the, uh, who removed his body from the scene. I had to call around and find who removed his Wait, body. Wait, Danita, you had to call around? Yes. No I detective did. knocked on your door and said, your son's been killed, we'd like to ask you some questions so we can investigate and find out who did it? No, no. That's not how it works here. No. No, no, that's not how it works. Good morning, Detective Thomas. This is Margie Allen following up from yesterday's text and email uh, concerning an update on my son's Ryan Allen's murder case. This is my second time calling and texting you. Please give me a call. Thank you. Jim Axelrod, chief investigative correspondent for CBS News, joins us now along with his producer on this series, Andy Bast. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having us. I watched your piece from Jackson, Mississippi. Mm. You talked to a ballroom full of family members of victims who are still distraught. Why? They lost loved ones and the, their murders still have not been solved. The killers have not been caught. It was a really good piece, Jim. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, Andy and I have been working on this uh, for a while. I, I think, Jeff, what's important to understand about that ballroom, and I think Andy would agree with me, it's among the most compelling and moving places either of us have been. Um, we walked in expecting to talk to three or four people, and we ended up with several dozen. But that, and, and I want to circle back to this, but let's start by saying that was the human face of pain and suffering that are rooted in some very disturbing numbers, a trend that is really a 50-year low in terms of, of solving homicide cases. In the late 1960s, eight out of every 10 homicides in this country was solved, was cleared. There was an arrest made. That number today is 50-50, um, which is obviously, you know, a, a flip of a coin. But I think, Andy, you would agree with me that while that is troubling enough, there is an even more disturbing 
disparity that I think becomes the big takeaway headline from our investigation. Yeah, and this is what happens when we, you start peeling back the layers on one of these big, huge facts that's kind of out there and everybody knows. I mean, on the one hand, it's no surprise that one out of two murders aren't being solved, uh, but it's one of these things that's staring everybody in the face and nobody points their finger at. So we started to dig into it, and once we started to peel back the layers, the data got very complicated very quickly, but our team dug in pretty deep and started to understand that there were some racial dynamics here. And the, the revelation that we came to, what we came to find in this project, is that for white uh, murder victims, there's more than an 85% chance that their murder will be solved. And the numbers for Hispanic and for black victims has been trending down over the last couple of decades. And now it's 20 to 25%. Uh, there's a 20 to 25% lower chance that uh, those murders will be solved. And that racial disparity was something that as soon as we learned it, we said, okay, we understand the story, and now how do we start telling this and building something around it? So I really yeah. guided, guided our reporting there. Um, yeah, and and I, I couldn't help but notice in the, the Jackson, Mississippi piece, all of the people that you interviewed were African-American. And so I'm glad that you bring up those statistics. What do you think, Jim, is is driving this racial disparity? Well, there are a number of issues uh, that have to do in a post-George Floyd world. Let's start with the erosion of trust that is required to solve any murder. In other words, if somebody's going to pull into a scene, what's the first thing they're going to do? They're going to start talking to people, witnesses, folks who have possible leads that they could generate. If you pull into a scene and people are like, hey, I'm not talking to you. Um, I have no trust in you, Mr. Detective. Um, then you're starting from a position of weakness. And that trust we heard from a number of law enforcement officers and community leaders as well. That trust needs to be restored. The eroded trust needs to be restored if there's going to be any traction made in reversing this trend. Andy, I don't know if, if you felt this way, but I know when we talked to the commissioner of police in Philadelphia and and we were able to ask some pointed questions, because one thing we would hear often was that, that it was almost incumbent upon the community, especially the community of color, to do better in cooperating with the police. And one of the questions that Andy and I developed was, wait a minute, why is it incumbent on the community of color in a post-George Floyd world doesn't that have to do with how the police approach the community? And a number of police officers said to us, yeah, no, this is not a, this is not on, on the burden isn't just on one part of this equation. Police have to do better as well. Yeah. And to make this even more complicated, I mean, Jeff, you and I have done investigative stories together and Jim and I have done a number so we all know that when you're setting out to do an investigative story, your job in large part is making a whole lot of phone calls where people either don't answer or they hang up on you, right? That's the vast majority of what we do. In this case, we started calling some of those folks in the community in Jackson and exactly the opposite happened. The moment we started talking to mothers who had lost sons or family members who had lost brothers and sisters and even fathers to murder in this one southern capital, it wasn't like 
we were hitting resistance, it was exactly the opposite. And in fact, our phones started ringing because the community was so frustrated and wanted to have their stories heard and, you know, eventually wanted to get in front of our television cameras when we set up that room, just like Jim said. We expected, uh, you know, a, a few, a handful, and they just kept coming because the frustration level was so high. What I appreciated about that piece from or about Jackson, Mississippi is that you also talked to law enforcement there. You spoke to detectives. You spoke to the police chief. You also spoke to the mayor of the city, and you challenged them, and they responded, Jim. I must say, Jeff, let's give a little credit where credit is due, Um, because not only did they let us into the bureau, the homicide division, which was very telling, desks piled high with folders, you know, the the FBI guidelines, as I, I think we were getting into, the recommendations is that every homicide detective should have five cases, maybe four or five cases to do a maximum uh, efficient uh, a job of maximum efficiency and effectiveness. And in Jackson, which is the highest one of, if not the highest per capita homicide rates in the country, detectives are doing four times that. And you go in and you see on their desks like piled high with folders and guys couldn't even see over their desk because of the amount of case folders they had. And they said, look, we are drinking water out of a fire hose here. We are overwhelmed. We don't have enough manpower. Uh, They're set up to maybe with the they have the manpower could handle 40 cases a year. They have 150 um, plus. And that's just from one year. So the 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 situation was: Look, we're, we're this is what they said to us. We would love to solve these. We'd love to return calls quicker. We would love to be able to follow up on possible leads being generated, but we just don't have the manpower. And I don't know, Andy, what your thoughts were, but I felt it like it was pretty open uh, in terms of: Hey, look, nothing up our sleeves. You're looking at what we look at. And it's uh, it's a lot. When you set out to do these kinds of stories, you always want to talk to all sides. And we've all worked together, and that's how we always set off on these journeys. And as we all know, when you're doing tough stories, you often don't get that chance to have the time to really talk to all sides. Sometimes, you know, one set of folks, they'll give you a statement or they won't want to talk to you at all because they don't like your story. And this wasn't an easy story for the Jackson Police Department. Um, but as they continue to open the door... It just helped us, and I think it really helped the viewer see those pictures literally inside the room where they're doing the work. And when you see, you know, the cliche, it's one of the biggest cliches cliches ever, but cliches are often true. A picture is worth a thousand words. And when you look at that picture of that detective sitting in that cubicle in that small room, just piled, literally littered with murder case files you look at it and you say, you know what, everything that we've been talking about, it all felt theoretical until now we're here and seeing it in the flesh, seeing the paper on the desk. And I hope that that comes through for our viewers because that's one of the things that we really felt good about spending the time with the Jackson Police Department to understand the other side. And we really wanted to show that in order to hand over this this full portrait of the challenge down there. And in our series, Jeff, we were also given the run of the homicide division in the Philadelphia Police Department, 
the fourth largest department in the country. Uh, and I think Andy and I both felt that there was uh, a certain openness that perhaps we hadn't expected. Uh, not only did they let us in, they kind of stopped keeping tabs on us. We just roamed around the Homicide Bureau at the Philadelphia Police Department and saw, again, just how beleaguered and overwhelmed uh, the detectives are. But also, there was a sense of urgency, and these guys and women are not showing up every day to eat donuts. They were there to solve cases. Uh, so it was, you know, this this is obviously a complicated issue, complex set of, of problems. But I, I think Andy and I both felt that the access we were given by police departments was simply them wanting us to see how overwhelmed they are as a key component of explaining why there has been a 50-year low in the rate of homicide cases being cleared. Yeah, and I I think you'll see much the same story in a lot of cities across the country. And it's really really good that CBS News and you two in particular have exposed what, what is part of the problem contributing to the rise in crime across the country. And I implore those of you who are listening to America Change Forever, if you want to see those reports in full, you can always go to cbsnews.com. Jim Axelrod, CBS News Chief Investigative Correspondent, and Andy Bass, his producer on this project. Thank you both for your time. Thanks for having us. Really appreciate it. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhall in District Productive. You can hear us on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday. For now, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America changed forever. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.